bless the Lord through singing, we also bless the Lord through sitting, listening, and hearing his word. It's a vital part of what it has always meant throughout Scripture to be God's people. We are a hearing people. And uh, it is my responsibility and privilege to, to declare God's Word this morning verbally. And I ask that you pray for me this morning and every week as I try to do so. This morning, I want to speak to you on this title, Living on Mission. As we think about Christmas, I want us to be living on mission. As we get into the Gospel of Luke, I want us to realize that it's about us living on mission. And so before we get into God's Word, let me... Uh, well, actually, let me re read a, a section of what we're going to cover today, and then I'll pray and ask for God's help, and then we're going to dive into it. In Luke chapter 2, if you can turn in your Bibles, in Luke chapter 2, and if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and one of our ushers, ushers will bring you one. In Luke 2, starting in verse 41, let me read through the end of the chapter. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he, Jesus, was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went on a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his, and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching you for you in great distress. Verse 49. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This morning I want to preach to you on the topic, worrying your parents. I just changed it. <laughs> just kidding. Living on mission. Father, we ask that you help us as we study this text and as we see the mission that Jesus was called to as he freed us from our sin and, and, and frees us to live on mission for him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A Scottish teacher who only had one leg wanted to go on as a missionary in a, up the river, a lot of hiking, uh, a lot of uh, boating, in inland China 
with Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a Chinese missionary, and he uh, had started a mission agency. And so people would apply to his missions agency to go up the river into inland China. And so this man came, and, uh, and so Hudson Taylor asked him, given his challenge, he said, um, you know, why do you want to be a missionary, in particular, knowing the challenges that you're going to be facing only having one leg with this kind of physical uh, uh, endurance that's going to be needed? And the Scottish teacher said, well, I don't see those with two legs going. He was accepted, and he did a wonderful job. You know, sometimes we have everything that it takes. Sometimes we've got the gifting. Sometimes we've got the training. We've got bodies that work. We've got mouths that speak, minds that can think. Sometimes we have everything it takes, and we sit on our hands. Somebody else will speak. Somebody else will share the good news of Jesus Christ with this lost and dying person. Not me. I want to speak to you, that, as I said this morning, on this topic, living on mission. I want to talk about us, you, living on mission. Now, before we understand the mission that we're called to, we have to understand the mission that Jesus was called to. I want to take some time this morning and look at the rest of Luke 2 and see the mission of Jesus Christ. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God in, and sinners reconciled. Joyful all you nations rise, join the triumphs of the skies. With the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness, light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings, mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the son of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is about his mission. Jesus was born on mission. Last week, as we started Luke chapter 2, we saw Jesus' birth, the details of it, and his identity. This week, as we finish Luke chapter 2, what we're going to see and focus on is his mission that he came here to do. He was born on mission. First, Jesus was born under the law. If you were to read Luke 2, starting with verse 21, through the section I just read, what you would see is that Jesus went through all of the ceremonial rites of the law, that the law required. So in verse 20, 21, if you look at the text, at the end of eight days, Jesus is circumcised. And there he's given the name Jesus. Now what's the point of this? If you're not familiar with the Bible, you're thinking, that's a strange detail. 
good to know, I guess. Well, circumcision was part of the covenant that God had made with Israel through Abraham and then the covenant, the Mosaic covenant that God made with Moses for the people of Israel. The sign of the covenant was uh, initially given to Abraham in Genesis 17, 12, and that was circumcision. And so every newborn male is to be circumcised. The sign of the covenant is to be placed upon him on the eighth day. He goes on in verse 22 to say, and when the time came for the purification. Look at the text. He says, according to the law of Moses. Don't you see, Jesus is born under the law. Like sometimes we forget in 21st century America that Jesus was a Jew. He was an American. We can all agree on that, right? There's like probably 2% of you that are like, huh? And probably 20% of broader society would be like, what? But he did speak King James English. No, he was Jewish. Jesus was, he was a Jew. And, and we've got to understand a little bit, we don't have a lot of time this morning to get into it, but a little bit of what God was doing prior to Jesus with the Jews. God had given Moses a covenant. And a law was attached to the covenant. And promises and blessings. If Israel, God's people, who are to represent God to the world, if they obeyed the law, if they fulfilled the law, then they would be recipients of all of God's blessings and they would inherit the promised land. If they, however, disobeyed the law, they then were covenant breakers and they would be cut off from God. They would be divorced from God and ultimately the curse of the covenant, like Adam's curse, is that of death. It's just simply a reminder of the curse that all humans are under. Because Adam, our great representative head, fell, he sinned, and through Adam's sin entered into the world, and death through sin. We are all then under, born under the curse of the covenant. Born under it. Look at little Nyla up here. She's a little covenant breaker. A little law breaker. Just looking at her. She's beautiful though, but... We're born. Amen? You better say amen. We're born... Listen, we're born law breakers. And then we also... We also are lawbreakers as we sin against God. Every sin that we commit in life is cosmic treason against the eternal God. We are lawbreakers and thus we are under the curse of the law. Some Christians emphasize the atonement of Jesus Christ and rightly so. I emphasize it every single sermon. But they do so in a way that neglects or ignores what is theologically referred to as imputed righteousness. Everybody say imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness is the doctrine which states that the, that the righteousness of Jesus, meaning his obedience of the law, is imputed to you. It is donated to you. It is deposited into your broke bank account. 
You say, well, I didn't see that in my bank account. I don't mean your physical bank account. Your spiritual bank account. It means you can stand before God. Listen, this is so important. If you miss this, you're going to miss the whole gospel. You can stand before God and be accepted as righteous. Not because of your own righteousness. But because of His righteousness. This is why somebody can live their whole life like a hellion. Like a little demon. And at 89 years old, confess the Lord Jesus Christ as his or her Savior and, and, and stand before God and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Why? It's because we're not saved by our actual righteousness. We are saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's as if we have a cup. And in your cup, it is filled with guilt. Oh, in order to be accepted by God, you need to have a cup filled with righteousness. We have a twofold problem. The first problem of our guilt is solved in the atonement of Jesus Christ. We are forgiven. The guilt is removed from the cup and we are cleaned. But we still have a second problem and that is this. We need a cup filled with righteousness. How do we get that? It's the doctrine of imputed righteousness. It's, it's as if his righteousness is just, it, it fills our cup up. And we have his righteousness. We have to understand that in order to understand what the, the text here. So Jesus first is born under the law. Secondly, Jesus fulfilled the law. So we see on the eighth day, he's circumcised. Fulfilling the law. He goes on, as it is written, verse 23. According to the law. And, and, and here in, in this section, part of the law in Exodus 13, verse 2, 12, and 15, also Numbers chapter 18, 15. These are some laws of Israel which say that for every firstborn male, there is to be an offering presented at the temple. We see just documentation. They fulfilled the law. So, so uh, Mary and Joseph come to the temple and they bring the offering. Even in the law, it allows uh, for a pair of turtle doves or two pigeons to be given if you're poor. Now, if you've ever looked at the price of a turtle dove today, you would never know that. Evidently, turtle doves were a whole lot cheaper 2,000 years ago. It was the offering of the poor. And so Mary and Joseph being poor, Jesus born into poverty, he has parents that take option B and they bring the, 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 the offering of the poor family. But we see him, him fulfilling the law even throughout his life and, and as a newborn baby. While they're at the temple here, there's, there's two encounters that they have, Mary and Joseph have. The first one is with a man named Simeon. Simeon is a dude who's uh, been, been told by God that he's going to see the Messiah before he dies. Simeon lays his eyes on Jesus and he says, I can die now. I've seen the Messiah. We don't know how he knows it, but he knew it. And he bursts out into song. Now, two years ago, Montrell preached on Simeon's song. And since all of you, I'm sure, remember his sermon, I'm not even going to read it. Just, just remember what he said. But it's a beautiful song as he praises God and, and he even prophesies a little bit. 
He says, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many and for a sign that is opposed. Verse 35, this is interesting to me. A sword will pierce through your own soul also. He's saying this to Mary. Meaning, this child is going to bring you some harm. This child is going to bring you some sadness. This child is going to bring you some pain. We don't know how yet, but he's going to. They have another encounter with a woman named Anna. Anna is a prophetess, which is just interesting to point out. There hasn't been a prophet in 200 years in Israel. And now at this time, God raises up a prophet. And this woman, a prophetess, she's declaring that this baby at the temple is the Messiah. It doesn't say much about exactly what she was saying, but the picture we get is that she's going around to everybody at the temple and and probably carrying a little baby around around, or maybe carrying Mary around who's holding the baby. We don't know. And saying, look, 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 everybody look. This is the Messiah. This is the chosen one. The first person to point to the Lord Jesus Christ. The first person to point to others, to tell others about Jesus. Anna. One thing Montrell pointed out is that Simeon and Anna, according to some commentators, they believe that they represent the law and the prophets. Simeon is called a devout man, which would be a reference to the law, and Anna, of course, is a prophet. The law and the prophets is a nickname for what? Anybody? Old Testament. Look at this elder over here. Old Testament. I think it's very likely that what Luke is doing here as he shows us Simeon and then Anna is saying uh, the whole Old Testament agrees. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus. The whole Old Testament prophesies that he is indeed the Savior, the Messiah. Verse 39 Luke sums up this whole section and he says, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. You see his point there? Luke is giving us a big overview of the fact that everything is done to this little baby according to the law of the Lord. Born under the law, one who fulfills the law. He also taught the law. Now, what, what's happening here in Luke is, is we're, we're seeing Luke just kind of push the fast-forward button through Jesus' life. And he pushes play just a couple spots. And what I think Luke is doing as he's doing this is he's showing us, he's highlighting the mission that Jesus was on. So we push fast-forward and we go from baby to the age 12. Do we have any 12-year-olds in the room? There we go, we got one. All right, sorry, you're going to be picked on now. So, now, ingenuity, is that right? Smart little girl over here, 12 years old, Ayana. Check out Jesus when he was 12, all right? You think you're smart. Ain't nobody in ingenuity that's going to hold a candle up to this guy, all right? He's beyond ingenuity. Is it what's higher than ingenuity? You don't know? Jesus. That was the correct answer. (laughs) 
What do we see him doing at 12? Well, let's, look, let's actually jump in. Let's push play here with Luke a little bit. Let's travel with him a little bit here. Jesus is 12 years old. And we see continuing a fulfillment of the law uh, right before Jesus is to become a, a, a male. There's a trip to, or a male, an adult male. What right before you? What's, what's going on with this guy? <laughs> We're not men and males until we're adults um, before he becomes an adult at 13 they take a trip to the temple and this is re again required according to the law his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover when he was 12 years old they went up according to custom You see that right there verse 43 when the feast was ended as they were returning the boy Jesus stayed behind. Let's just pause for a second. Recognize, it doesn't say he was left behind on accident. He stayed behind. Meaning Jesus probably saw his family leaving. He was like, I'm just going to stay right here. <laughs> he stayed behind, yet without sin. I just, I'm wrestling with this this week, trying to wrap my mind around it, because if my child just stayed behind, you know, to have a little Bible study. I don't know if I would call that innocent. But I think we see something here even about Jesus' bigger mission on earth. What he's doing on earth. Jesus stays behind in Jerusalem. Now his parents didn't know it. Alright, so when I forget my child, can you give me a break as well? <laughs> Alright? No, his parents didn't know it. Is this because they're bad parents? No. Actually, what's going on here is in, in uh, ancient Israel, as they would leave, they'd be in this big caravan of family and relatives, and the men would typically walk uh, in the rear with the older kids. The women would walk in the front with the younger kids. And uh, uh, Jesus at 12 could be on, in either section, you see? And so Joseph probably thought Jesus was, was with Mary, and Mary probably thought Jesus with, was with Joseph. A day goes by. This is like us traveling from here to, what, by plane, like China, <laughs> all right? The, a very far uh, uh, away place. A whole day's journey it's going to take to get back. It's kind of like Home Alone. This is like another Christmas story, right? <laughs> Kevin, right? That was probably the response of Mary. Jesus. When they realized. The difference is... Kevin and Jesus, not even comparable, all right? Um, they're a day's journey away. They realize he's not with them. They search among the crowd. They can't find him. They make their way back. It takes, takes three days before they find him. When they find him, what happens? Well, he's sitting at the temple, and he's among the teachers, listening to them and asking them, questions. Check this out. At 12 years old, Jesus was a child of the Bible. Like, I am convicted myself as a 37-year-old man about this little 12-year-old. For three days, Jesus has been having Bible study, engaged in the text. 
Jesus has been for three days asking questions of what Luke calls to be the teachers of the law. He's asking questions of them and he's listening to their answers. Jesus is he's intense. He loves the Word of God. Like sometimes we have trouble spending five minutes in God's Word on a daily basis. Sometimes we have trouble during church staying awake. What do you say? <laughs> sometimes we have trouble staying off our phones during church, right? Putting that away. <laughs> Trying to see what else I can find people doing. <laughs> But Jesus loved the Word of God, and we should be convicted by this. We should be following the example of our Lord and love the Word of God and find nothing more uh, uh, enjoyable than sitting for three days asking questions and listening to answers. But he wasn't just listening to answers, was he? In the next verse, what we find is that all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Which means Jesus was able to put two and two together like nobody else. Jesus was able to connect the theological dots of Scripture and offer his own answers to the questions that the teachers are asking him. Now check this out. From this point on in the Gospel of Luke, Luke refers to nobody else as a teacher but Jesus. This is the last time he uses the word teacher to, refer, to reference anybody other than Jesus. It's almost as if Luke is saying, from this point on, at 12 years old, there is only one teacher of the law, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. We have one teacher, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus taught the law. He was a teacher. He had people who listened to his teaching and were astonished. Now, fourthly, what we see here in this text is that Jesus takes the curse of the law. Let me break it down for you what I see so far. Number one, Jesus was born under the law, Jesus fulfilled the law, Jesus taught the law, and Jesus took the curse of the law. Now, you might ask me, Joel, where do you see that in the text? I don't think it's explicit. I think it's implied. Remember, uh, uh, Simeon said to Mary, this boy is going to cause you some pain. A sword is going to go through your side as well, or your flesh. Remember that it takes them how many days to find Jesus? Three days. I think Luke is just pointing something out for us. I think he's just giving us a little shadow of something that is to come. Get the picture. Mary has just heard that he's going to cause her pain, and immediately it is played out. He, she can't find Jesus. And she can't find him for three days. And it's not until the third day that she finds him. For three days, Mary was in utter agony. And if you've ever lost a child, you know the kind of agony that she was feeling in this moment for three days. I think it's pointing us to another three days of loss. I think Luke is hinting at the agony of losing Jesus in a whole different way. 
If you've ever lost a child, you know that agony. The agony Mary felt when Jesus was older. When his body was ripped to shreds. When she saw nails going in the hands and the feet of her boy. When she saw that spear shoved into his side. She saw her child die on the cross. Why? Why? Mary knew. Even now in this text, Mary and Joseph are learning his mission. They're seeing it. They're starting to understand it. Jesus himself teaches her as she rebukes him in this moment and says, Son, why have you treated us like this? We've been searching for you. And in verse 49... Jesus says, why were you looking for me? Not why were you looking for me, period, but meaning why, why did it take you three days to find me? Why were you looking over there and over, to, over there? You knew where I would be. I would be right here in my father's house. Jesus is responding, responding to her statement, why are you worrying your father and I? With a glimpse into his own mission on earth. I am about my father's business. Mary treasured these things in her heart, verse 51. Jesus came on mission. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5 reads this, But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive our adoption as sons. How is it possible that we could be adopted as sons? It's because Jesus came as one who fulfilled the law and then took on the curse of the law in his own body and was beaten and hanged on a cross. Listen, your hope of salvation is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Your hope of salvation is in the fact that this man hung for you and died for you and took the curse of the law for you. Listen, I said we've got to understand his mission before we can understand our own mission. We're spending the majority of this sermon on his mission. And then I'll give you a couple thoughts on our own mission as we close in just a minute. When I was a youth pastor over on the Eastern Shore, I brought my teens, uh, one of whom is right here, actually. What's up, Matthew? He wasn't quite a teen, but I brought his sister, his older sister, who was in my youth group, with me to Baltimore. And um, so we, we were doing some work here in the city, and we cleaned a uh, skate park in southwest Baltimore. And our, we spent the entire week out there kind of interacting with these dudes who'd be hanging out in the skate park and, and then cleaning. It was, just, it was a mess. So we spent literally a week of picking up trash, put it, filling up trash bags, picking up clothes, throwing clothes into trash bags. You know, you, you know what you find out there. The syringe here and there. Like it was, it was just cleaning up the skate park. Now, here's the thing. My teens thought they were doing something. They thought, we are making a difference in Baltimore. <laughs> and, uh, now, it was good. Don't get me wrong. 
it's good to get, like, get some kids out and to get them to clean some stuff up. It makes more of a difference in them than it does in Baltimore. After we were finished cleaning, at the end of the week, we drove north from, from that neighborhood and drove through the rest of West Baltimore and through East Baltimore. And I'll never forget their reaction. I was actually just kind of giving them some sightseeing. Their reaction was like, oh, we did nothing. We did nothing. They, they, they were like, Joel, the, the, it was a waste of a week. What did we do? Listen, us trying to earn our own righteousness is a, is a lot like that. We get in one little part of our heart and we say, I'm going to clean this up. I'm going to work on this and I'm going to do something for myself. And we work and we work and we seek to earn our own righteousness only to travel down the alleys of our heart and find one block after another of trash. Only to realize in all of our work for uh, 20, 30, 50, 60 years of trying to earn our own righteousness, we've done nothing. We've got this mess that's all around us. And I find that we have one of two options. One option is to be like most people in this world, and that is to try to do something with your own guilt through doing better. That is to try to uh, be in, basically you're in despair, hopping out every other block, trying to do, clean up some mess, hoping that that'll make a difference in your life, only to get back in your car and be on this rat race of guilt. This rat race of trying to clean something up. And as soon as you clean it up, what happens a week later? It's messed up again. Yeah, what an analogy for us trying to earn our, 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 our own righteousness. We can't do it. Listen, trusting in this man, Jesus Christ, means that the curse of the law has been taken away from us. We're no longer under our guilt. He took it on the cross. Friends, trust in Him. Trust in His death. Believe that His death is enough to forgive you of all the mess in your heart. But secondly, we've been a recipient of His righteousness. It doesn't mean that our heart is actually cleaned right now. Yeah, it is being cleaned, and the Holy Spirit is doing a, a lot better job of cleaning up your heart than you ever did prior to your conversion. But we are declared to be righteous. Know the difference. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, we all know the verse, well, many of us do, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The very next verse goes on to say, and we are justified. Freely by His grace. Everybody say the word justified. justified. Justified doesn't mean actual righteousness. It doesn't mean that we actually did the work in our own heart and earned ourselves favor before God. Justified means that God in some fashion has looked at you and said, you are righteous. That's huge. 
Tony, God has looked at you and said, you are righteous. Alton, you're righteous. Andrew, you are righteous. Now we know these men aren't righteous. <laughs> How is it possible then that God could declare them to be righteous? It's imputed righteousness. It's the fact that Jesus accomplished holiness on our behalf. Jesus obeyed for us. You guys know the story of David and Goliath? Goliath, this giant. He challenges all of Israel, bring me your best. If your best can defeat me, then you win. Who do they bring? David. When David fights Goliath, listen, he doesn't fight Goliath for himself. When David fights Goliath, he fights Goliath on behalf of all of the soldiers who were too afraid to fight Goliath. When David fights Goliath, he does so as the representative for the whole people. And when Jesus fulfills the law, when Jesus obeys God perfectly, he does so as a representative for all the people. When Jesus defeats Satan, death, destruction, when Jesus defeats the giant, he does so for all of us who never would have a chance. This is imputed righteousness. This is the importance of Luke 2, showing us just these simple little glimpses into the fact that Jesus fulfilled the law. Born under the law, so he might fulfill the law for us, on behalf of us, who have been under the curse of the law, to rescue us. Do you trust in him? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Don't leave here trusting in any other name for your salvation than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, once we understand Jesus' mission, we can talk about our own mission. The point I'm trying to make in Luke 2 is this. I think Luke is just showing us Jesus was born to be on mission. He was born to be on a mission for your redemption and for the redemption of all of God's people. Trusting in this man saves you, yes. And secondly, trusting in this man sends you on mission. As a teacher, Jesus shows us what is holy. And a lot of that looks like being on mission in this world. Mary's response in verse 51 to Jesus' teaching is astonishment. And, and she treasures these things in her heart. We should love Jesus. We should be astonished with Jesus. We should also treasure these things in our heart. But our response actually goes beyond Mary's. Because we are on this side of the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension, and His great commission. We as Christians have been sent also on mission in this world. You might not have been born on mission, but listen, you were reborn on mission. From, from the moment that God saved you, He set you on a mission. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10, it's clear that we are saved not by works, right? Everybody say amen to that. Amen. 
We are saved not by our works, but then he goes on to say we are saved for good works. Meaning, as people who have been freed from the curse of the law, what is our response? To just live an inward, selfish, self-centered life all about our own glory and all about our own comfort? Sounds about right. Unless you read the Bible. Listen, we are to be a people who are on mission for Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus' mission involved his family. As Jesus is living his life on mission, he is dying for his mother. Think about that. She's one of the people for whom uh, he, he will die. Pay the price for, the, for his mother's sins. As he dies, he takes care of his mother. He loves his mother. Makes sure that John's going to take care of her. Jesus cared about his mother. As a matter of fact, even at 12 years old, after this incident, it says that Jesus went back and in verse 51, he was submissive to them. Think about this. The Savior of the world. The Savior of Mary. Submissive to his parents. Can I have the kids look at me for a second? (laughs) By the way, I like it when, you kids, I like it when you're looking at me. Too often you're like this. I just see the top of your head. It's kind of nice to see your eyeballs. Y'all got pretty eyes. Listen, it is interesting and important to note that Jesus' mission as a child was about being submissive to his parents. As a matter of fact, I think, I don't, I think that's why we don't see a whole lot about Jesus' childhood. is because he was just living a holy life, obedient to his parents. It could just be summarized in that statement. So uh, kids, part of your mission right now that God has called you to is to obey your parents, is to be submissive to them, is to honor them. And for all of us, as we even think of kids, you know, there are some kids in the city who don't have godly parents. There are some kids in the city who don't have parents that, that, that are walking them to school, that are making sure they're getting up in the morning. There, there are some parents in the city who might look the other way when their kids are going out on the streets. Listen, does part of our mission as, uh, as, as adults include our own children? Absolutely it does. And might it also include someone else's child? Absolutely it does. Listen, we are to be on mission within our own family, but we also see in this text that his mission was bigger than his family. Jesus says, I'm about my father's business. He's saying something there about the broad reality of his mission. I think so often one of my concerns with Christians is, one of my concerns with Christians is a disregard for your family. But I think on the flip side, a concern is sometimes Christians only think about their family as it relates to mission. As if our kids or our parents or our brothers and sisters are the only people in the world that don't know Jesus. It might mean that you need to get out and meet some other people who don't know Jesus. We're called to love the stranger. We're called to love the outcast. We're called to love the broken and the hurting and those in crisis. Rosaria Butterfield wrote a book on hospitality. I recently listened to a lecture of hers. 
And she was talking about the reality of bringing outsiders into your home, outcasts, broken. People that others in the world might say, that's dangerous for you to bring, bring that person in there. She said she's often asked, is it risky to have the broken, to have others, outsiders, strangers come into your home on mission? And she said, yes, it's risky. But it's riskier for them if I don't. Meaning, are we going to live our lives for our own safety or are we going to live our lives for the safety of others? Are we going to live our lives for our own security or are we going to live our lives for the eternal security of others? Are we going to live our lives for our own comfort or are we going to live our lives for the comfort of others? Sometimes I think we've bought the lie of the world. The world says to you belongs the glory. The Bible says not to us. Not to us, but to you be the glory. We are a people called by Jesus Christ, freed from the curse of the law to live on mission in this world. This Christmas, will we live inward or outward? This Christmas, will we be on mission for others or for ourselves? You know, this is why that Scottish teacher said, I don't see those with two legs going. Because so sometimes we could be in church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday for years. Some of you have been in church your whole life. And you can't tell me one person you shared the gospel with in 2018. Are we on mission or are we not on mission? What if in 2019, if I were to ask you, who have you shared the gospel with? You could name, name somebody. Maybe a couple people. People that you've been able to develop a relationship with. People that you've been able to develop some rapport with. Conversations that have been able to, have been turned to gospel conversations. Someone who you've actually called repent and believe. Now listen, we go forward into this mission driven not by guilt. Even our current guilt of lackadaisicalness sitting on our spiritual hands, all of that's on Christ. You're not under any of that guilt. There ain't no guilt trips in this room. We're freed from guilt. Motivated by His grace, let us love others. Motivate, motivated by His grace, let us go into the world and spend ourselves on behalf of others. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this text. We thank You for Jesus. What a wonderful child He is. And God, as He grow, grew into a man and took on the curse of 
sin, what a wonderful Savior.